Look at page 15 in your notes. We'll be on lesson four, page 15. And before we get into lesson four of our series, Why You Can Trust the Bible, let me just uh, remind you of a few things that are coming up. One is our newcomers orientation that we do a few times each year. That's going to be the four Sundays of June, so June 7, 14, 21, and 28. So if you've never taken our newcomers orientation, then I encourage you to, to take that. Uh, we uh, provide that as informational only. We don't... Uh, pressure you after you've taken it to find out uh, what your intentions are. Now, if you're here a year or so after you've taken it and you're you're still here and you haven't gone somewhere else, then I might say, are you going to stay here or are you going to go somewhere else? I might do that after after a year or so. But we'll give you a lot of breathing room. So no pressure. It really is for information, and we want you to be able to make an informed decision about where the Lord would have you to grow and serve. And that's why we periodically offer this then throughout the year. So the next one of those is in June. Uh, I lead that. I give you a booklet of material that tells you about the origin of our church, what we believe, uh, what we hope to accomplish in, in the future, why we do things the way we do them. So it's uh, helpful, I think essential really, uh, for you to have that before you make a decision about whether this would be the place for you. So mark that, June 7th and all of the four Sundays in June. We'll meet in adult room 2, which is out that back door and across the hallway during this hour on those days. So those of you that fit in that category, uh, please uh, accept that invitation for the newcomer's orientation. Also, in your program last week and, excuse me, today for the first time and for the next few weeks, uh, we have information about the teen ministry trip that's going to happen in the middle of July. And for that, we're trying to defray the cost a bit for as many of the teenagers as we can by asking any families who would like to to sponsor a, a teenager. And if we could if we could collect, we think we're going to have 25 or 26 young people going. Why that number? Because that's all we can fit in the vehicles. Uh, we actually have about 40 young people in our uh, in our. Uh, senior high uh, ministry, but not all of them are going to be able to go. Not all of them want to go. They have other things and family vacations and so on. Uh, but it is parents of those teenagers. It is first register, uh, then first get in the van. So uh, you'll need to respond to the email that you received this past week with a link for how to register for that right away. And then uh, for those that are going, 25 or 26 then we want to defray that cost of $450 as much as we can. That's a very reasonable cost for all they're going to be doing, but still a steep cost, and uh, some of our families have multiple teenagers as well. So if we could collect over the next month about $2,500, that'd be on average $100 per per student. Not every family needs that, and so we might be able to give $150 to some who need it more. Uh, we will uh, see which uh, families, some families I, I already know, uh, are not interested uh, in that and want that money to go to another teen. So at least $100 per teen and maybe more for some of them. So if you uh, can do that, then uh, do so over the next few weeks. Uh, get a uh, giving envelope at the information center and then mark it for the teen ministry trip. Or you can just put in the memo portion of your check that, okay? And then with uh, regard to Amanda and uh, Morgan and the trip they're going to be taking starting Tuesday, I was supposed to say this while they were up here, uh, and I forgot to, and that is don't try to contact them. Don't try to put stuff on Facebook 
about the fact that they're in that they're in China or any of that. So we're pretty much not going to be able to have contact directly with them for the month that they're gone. And if you want to find out how it's going, you'll have to check with their family. And to the extent their families have been able to have contact, then they can uh, they can fill us in. But for security reasons for them, because they don't have full relig- religious freedom uh, where they're going, then that can't be broadcast. So I'm going to send an email to the church family tomorrow to remind you about that as well. And one final clarification. If you were with us last week, I told a story about me uh, when I was like 23 uh, being uh, arrested and uh, and I didn't finish the story. And so I had several of you come very concerned about what was the outcome of all of that. You know, what was it that they said they had a warrant in Dearborn for, which is what I told you. What did you have a warrant in Dearborn for? So before I tell you what I had this warrant for, I just, I'm very gratified that there are so many people in our church that are concerned about me and, and my past because these, these looks had the look of what kind of church have I come to? <laughs> what kind of stuff have you been involved in? So the warrant was because of an unpaid parking ticket from a few years earlier when I was attending University of Michigan Dearborn. And I didn't even know I had this parking ticket, but I did, and it had been for a few years, and so over time, then they issue a warrant for your arrest, and then I got pulled over for speeding, and then they go and look me up, and I've got a warrant issued in Dearborn. So that's how that happened, and the Wyandotte police flex their muscle by getting me out of the vehicle, getting me against the car, frisking me, hands behind my back, the um, the uh, handcuffs. I failed to mention that when I went to the station, they also fingerprinted me as well, and then they put me in the then they put me in the little holding cell until my dear mother came and, and bailed me out. So, um, some of you are happy about me being fingerprinted. <laughs> this is <laughs> so. My criminal past was the unpaid parking ticket at the University of Michigan Dearborn. Okay, all right. Lesson four, page fifteen of why you can trust the Bible. Our first lesson, we looked at the necessity of revelation. That is, the fact that it's necessary for God to reveal, make known, truth about himself, truth about his purposes for his world, truth about us. It's necessary for God to make that known in order for us to know it all. Think about that. How, How can you know why the world came into existence? The only way you will know if is if the one who was there tells you. And that's what revelation is, God telling us, God making known. So since in the beginning God, since God was here first, and since God made the world, then God's going to have to tell us about himself and about his purposes. It's necessary in order for you to know about yourself and why you're here and why the world is as it is, it's necessary for God to tell us. Thankfully, God has made known, God has revealed, God has spoken. And God has spoken in the pages of of Scripture. And that was lesson two, the necessity not only of revelation for God to make known, but for God to inscripturate what he makes known, to have it written down and to have it preserved. It's one thing for God to speak once and to an individual. It's another thing for God to speak and preserve what he has said for millennia. And that's precisely what he has done in, in Holy Scripture. So lesson two was the necessity of Scripture, and we looked at how Scripture has come to us and how God produced 
the Bible, how the Bible has been transmitted to us, and how we know that uh, it has been preserved. And then last week, in Lesson 3, we began to look at the characteristics of Scripture, some of the unique characteristics of the Bible. And one of those unique characteristics is that the Bible has many predictions that point to the fact that its ultimate author is not human, that its ultimate author is God, that had to be someone who could arrange circumstances such that ahead of time he could tell you what's going to happen. And so this God of the Bible says, I have made known the end from the beginning. So from the very beginning, I've told you how it's going to turn out. And in your Bible, you have a first book, Genesis, a book of beginnings, but then you have a last book called the book of Revelation, 64 other books in between, 66 of them total. And when you get to that final book, the book of Revelation, God's telling you how it's all going to turn out. God's predicting how it's going to turn out. Well, how does he know how it's going to turn out? Because God has designed it. God has planned it. And this God who has planned it has given us in Scripture a number of predictions, amazingly detailed predictions. We saw some of those last week in his predictions regarding the ultimate fate of some cities of Sidon and Tyre and Memphis in not Memphis, Tennessee, but Memphis in in Egypt. Today, top of page 15, we're going to look at some further predictions, but these are centered on Jesus the Messiah. Top of page 15, unlike the holy books of other world religions, the Bible makes detailed predictions regarding the future. Now, let me just start there. But if you've had exposure to the holy books of of some other religions, take the Koran, for example. Uh, The Koran, unlike the Bible, which is written by 40 different authors, 66 separate books that comprise the Bible, and written by those 40 different authors over a period of about 1,600 years. Unlike that, what you have in the Koran is a book written by one author in his lifetime. And, and that would be, and that would be Muhammad. And there are no predictions, uh, no predictive prophecies in, in the Koran. So as, as you ask the question, well then, what credentials does the Koran have to suggest that it's the Word of God? It's simply a bare claim to authority. You either believe Muhammad or you don't. Whereas the Bible has these these predictions that point to its uniqueness, point to its divine origin, and we're going to see some further ones today. So unlike holy books of other world religions, the Bible makes these kinds of predictions that are simply a characteristic, a feature of the Bible that points to an author beyond the 40 human authors that has brought it all together. Next line there, as seen in Lesson 3, some of the prophecies relate to the fate of certain cities like Tyre and Sidon. Still others are focused on particular people such as Cyrus, the king of Persia, Zedekiah, Moses, and and others. Yet most of the predictions of the Old Testament relate to the one who was to come, the Messiah. This lesson will review some of the Bible's predictions concerning the Messiah as well as the other And you see that's in quotation marks, convincing proofs. We'll look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 in just a bit. We'll look at those other convincing proofs that Jesus is the Christ. Now, let me explain those names there, Messiah, Jesus, and Christ. Jesus is his name given at his birth 2,000 years ago. Uh, Joseph was told by the angel, you will call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. 
So when the babe is born in Bethlehem, he is assigned this name, this human name, Jesus. But given that name specifically because the mission that he has come to fulfill is to save his people from their sins. So how does the name Jesus relate to saving from their sins? Here's how. The name Jesus literally means God saves or Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, saves. So when Joseph hears this, Joseph, who's familiar with 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 Hebrew, he he hears this, that you will call his name Jesus. Here's why, because he'll save his people from their sins. He makes that connection immediately. The name means that God saves. So his human name was given 2000 years ago. His name is Jesus. He doesn't have a last name. So his last name is not Christ. He's not from the Christ family. Joseph was not Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. And then they had a, you know, it's not that. So he has, he has, his given name is Jesus, given because of his mission. But Christ is his title. And in that paragraph, we also mention the one who was to come, the Messiah. And Messiah and Christ are the same thing. The reason there are two different words is because one is a translation of the Hebrew and the other a translation of Greek in your New Testament. So Messiah is a translation of the Old Testament word Mashiach, Messiah. And then Christ is a translation in your New Testament of the Greek equivalent Christos, Christ. So that last then sentence there that says, This lesson will review some of the Bible's predictions concerning the Messiah, That means that that Mashiach, that word means the anointed one, the one who was to come. So these predictions concerning the Messiah in the first part of the Bible, as well as other convincing proofs that, now notice in quotes, Jesus is the Christ. You see cited there John chapter 20 and verse 31 in your New Testament. This one who is called Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, is the anointed one. All right, now what are some of those prophecies? We have a long list of them for you on page 15. That's just there for your uh, reference, uh, but I'm going to just uh, highlight a few at the very beginning. That the Bible predicted that he would be born of uh, a virgin. And this the reason I'm highlighting that one is because it's extremely important theologically. Some of these simply point to the accuracy and the uniqueness of the Bible that the Bible could make these predictions. But this one not only does that, but it's it's important for our faith. That Jesus was born of a virgin, but even more important than him being born of a virgin was that he was conceived of a virgin. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the Bible teaches that at conception is when our sin nature is passed on to us. We, we become sinners, not at birth, but at conception. So in Psalm 51 and verse 5, Psalm 51 and verse 5, David says of himself, In sin did my mother conceive me. Now, if you're going to have then a sinless one come, who's going to die for the sins of all of the others conceived in sin, then there's going to need to be a break in the process. And God's miraculous break in the process is that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now, some ladies conclude from this, well, it appears the missing element here was the man. If you get the man out of the picture, it appears you get sin out of the picture as well. 
So it must be that the sin nature resides in the man, right? I've actually, when I've taught this, I've had ladies come and say, I knew it. Okay? No, it is the combination of the sperm and the egg, the conception process that results in the passing on of the, of the sin nature. And if you miraculously eliminate either one of those, you eliminate then the, the sin nature. So Christ was conceived then miraculously for a important theological and a missiological purpose, and that is for him to be sinless, sinless in his very nature, and therefore he never in an action ever sinned. And it's only because he never sinned, and it's only because he was conceived without sin that that was possible, and that's and that is the only reason then that he could be the substitute to pay for our sin. So this idea of the virgin conception of Jesus is extremely important. If it didn't happen, then he can't substitute for you, for you and me. And then number two there, he would be of the tribe of Judah, according to Genesis 49. Now, in our series in the first hour, our worship hour, where we're going through the opening chapters of Genesis, one of the things that we will do uh, when we get to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God makes a prediction that he's going to send this, this anointed one through the seed of the woman, to take care of the problem of sin. Well, then that will cause us to look at how this seed developed and through whom this seed developed. So if you will be with us over the next many weeks as we go through that, we will look at the fact that God predicted very early on, Genesis chapter 3, that the answer to the problem of sin would come through the seed of the woman, but then he identified the particular lineage through which that would happen. And the reason that this series in the early chapters of Genesis is going through the beginning of chapter 12 is because it's in chapter 12 that we're introduced to someone named Abraham. And God called Abraham to be the particular seed through which this is, this is going to, to uh, happen. And so Abraham then, we will be reminded, uh, Abraham had Isaac, and then through Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Jacob had 12 sons, and one of those sons is Judah, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel, and through the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49 says, this one would come. So there's this prediction in Genesis 3, and it's carried on through the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob. And then look at number four, that he would be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem in your New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, but that's predicted hundreds of years earlier in Micah chapter 5, the place where he would be born, born in Bethlehem. But I want to add to that. We've got Micah 5, 2 there and Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. But in addition to that, this whole Bethlehem idea uh, comes about through another book in your Bible, and that is the tiny eighth book of your uh, Old Testament, four chapters worth of Ruth, the book of Ruth. And if you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, I would encourage you to read those four chapters. It's an, it's an amazing story, very short. It's, uh, it's in some ways a love story between the uh, heroine of the book, uh, Ruth, and then, uh, and then her husband, uh, Boaz, who became her husband, in the process of the story that unfolds in, in Ruth. But here's how Bethlehem and Jesus fits into all that. When you get to that fourth chapter, you, uh, you find that uh, Boaz, the one that Ruth meets and marries, 
uh, is of Bethlehem. He's from Bethlehem. And then it goes on to tell you the children that they that they have. And Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. And Jesus is then to come through the line of King of King David. And it's because of this, it's because of all this stuff happening with Ruth and Boaz and Boaz being from Bethlehem, that then their great-grandson, David, is said to be uh, from, from Bethlehem. And in fact, Bethlehem is called the city of who? The city of David. So born to you this day in Bethlehem, the city of David. But how did it become the city of David? Through Ruth and Boaz. So here's God orchestrating this whole thing. Generations and centuries before it ever comes to fruition 2,000 years ago in Jesus being born in, in Bethlehem. All right. If you look at page 16 then, you've got the rest of these prophecies of Jesus I just wanted to highlight a few of those. But in addition to these, the Bible makes the amazing prediction of the very time of the Messiah's ministry and does so in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. So here's what verses 24 to 27 of Daniel 9 say. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to do six things. Finish transgression. Put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So these six things are going to happen in this period of 70 sevens, says Daniel. Now, Daniel is writing during the period of the Babylonian Empire. Hundreds of years before your New Testament. Hundreds of years before Jesus comes. And he's given this prediction by God about these six things that are going to be accomplished. And they're going to be accomplished in this period of 70 sevens. And I want you to note importantly that first line in verse 24 says, These 70 sevens are decreed for whom? They're decreed, Daniel, for your people. Now, who are Daniel's people? Daniel's people are the Jews. Remember, they, Daniel was a captive in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So Daniel is a descendant of Abraham. Daniel is a, is, a, is a Jew. And this prophecy is given to Daniel. And Daniel, these things are going to happen, but they're going to happen for your people, the Jews. Now, that's important, and I'll come back to it in, in just a bit. And these six things are going to happen during this period of 70, uh, period of 77s. And we'll talk about how long that is in a moment. Then verse 25 says, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. All right, do your math. That would be six, that would be 69 of your 70. Okay. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench and in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, which is actually after the 69, because remember there's seven, then 62. So after the 62, which includes a prior seven, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. That is, he'll be killed and have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Desolations have been decreed. 
he will confirm, that is, this, this, this wicked ruler, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of that seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that's decreed is poured out on him. Yikes, what is all of that? So here's Daniel, a Jew. He's in captivity in Babylon. He, like the other Jews, are wondering about their future. And God, and God gives this prophecy that says, these are the things that are going to happen to give you assurance. I haven't forgotten about you. Your future is absolutely secure. And so understand this is the way it's going to happen. There are going to be these 70 periods of seven. Now, what is that? If you have a King James Bible, verse 24 of Daniel 9 says 70 weeks are determined. Anybody got that? Weeks, it says. Now, when we say weeks, we think of seven days. But in fact, in Hebrew, it doesn't say a period of seven days. It just says 70 sevens, 70 periods of seven something. Could be seven days, could be seven hours. What fits the, what is the, what fits the context? And the only period of time that fits the context in Daniel chapter nine is years. 70 periods of seven years. Now do the math. 77 periods of, 70 periods of seven years are decreed. That's 490 years. And then it says until the point where the Messiah is cut off or killed, there's going to be these seven and 62 or 69. That's 483. 483 of those years are accounted for up until the time the Messiah comes and is killed. And then you've got seven more years hanging out there. So what happened to this other seven years? You all ever heard of, in your Bible, the seven-year tribulation? And when you read the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, it speaks of that seven-year period in some detail. And it speaks of that seven-year period not just in terms of seven years, but in terms of two periods of three and a half years. 42 months, it's called. 1,260 days, it is called. You've got these two halves of the seven years and three and a half. Now, why these, these halves? Look again at verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, that is one period of seven years. In the middle, he'll do these things. So at the three and a half year mark, He's going to do some stuff. And that whole timeline is picked up in the last book of your Bible, in the book of Revelation. So you've got 490 years. 483 of them are covered up until the time that the anointed one, the Messiah, is cut off or crucified. And then you've got this other seven that awaits the future to be, to be fulfilled. Now, that's all summarized in the middle of page 16 with the expositor's Bible commentary. This verse sets forth the approach of 77s of years during which God would accomplish his plan of national and spiritual redemption for Israel, that is the Jews. The 70 weeks or heptads, the Hebrew word literally means units of seven, whether days or years, are 490 years. This period was the time to elapse before the accomplishment of these six great achievements in verse 24 for the holy city and for God's covenant people. And then the expositor's Bible commentary goes on to talk about when the issuing of the decree happened to rebuild the city. Because that's when Daniel is told that these 
490 years will commence with the issuing of this decree. Well, when did that happen? And that next paragraph tells you that it happened in 457 B.C. and then lays out how the 483 years happened up until the very time Jesus was crucified. So here you've got a prediction, hundreds of years before it happens, of the very year that the Messiah is going to be cut off or crucified. And then you've got the seven additional years that are out there, and at the bottom, there's still one set of seven years to be fulfilled. This will occur in the future during what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. All right, and then there are, on page 17, not just messianic, that is, prophecies, that is, predictions of the Messiah, but top of page 17, messianic proofs. Predictions, and then there are these proofs that he is the Messiah. In our final moments, I'd like to talk about those that are contained in the Bible. The truth of Christianity rests on the reliability of an historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the Bible tells us that he walked the earth for 40 days before ascending to heaven. Here's what Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 says. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, that is the apostles, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now that is a verse that many people don't know about. So we think, many of us do, Jesus was crucified, Jesus was buried, he rose the third day, and then when he, after he rose, he showed himself to his Apostles, you know, doubting Thomas, touch my, my hands. He had some brief time with them, but then he ascended back to the Father. But in fact, he had nearly uh, six weeks with, with the Apostles. Forty days showing himself alive by many convincing proofs. So Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, that's the beginning of the book of Acts, starts that way. He showed himself for a period of of 40 days. And then you come to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, and it starts this way. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were gathered together in one room. Now, then it goes on to talk about the events of that amazing day. But why does Luke, who wrote the book of Acts give this timeline in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 of 40 days. And then in the next chapter, very first verse, he says, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were together in one room. How does that all tie together? Stay with me. So Jesus accomplishes his mission on earth. He dies for the sins of his people. He is buried. He is raised. And then he shows himself alive for for 40 days. But before he leaves... Jesus, uh, Jesus says, I want you to go and stay in the city until you receive power from, from on high. So, and then he ascended back to the Father. So the reason they're in the city of Jerusalem and they're all in this room like waiting is because Jesus said, go to the city and wait. And wait till you receive the power to begin what I've told you to do. So when you come to Acts chapter 2, there they are waiting. And the question is, how long have these guys been waiting? Well, here, here's how long they've been waiting. Uh, when it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, the word Pentecost means 50. And it was a feast in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, that would take place 50 days after Passover. Now, when did Jesus die? 
Passover. And Jesus was buried for three days. And he showed himself alive for 40 days. And then these guys are hanging out in Jerusalem waiting for power. And when 50 days come, they receive this power. So they've been there for about a week. From about day 43 to day 50. And that's why Luke gives you these time parameters. Jesus showed himself for 40 days. Then Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now here's what Luke could have done. Luke could have said, uh, they've been here for a week. But instead, he foresaw the time when guys like me would get paid to explain these things to you. <laughs> and during those 40 days, Jesus showed himself Jesus showed himself alive. We have the episode with uh, Thomas. But also, he was seen alive by a number of other people as well. Notice the middle of page 17. Elsewhere, the Bible elaborates on these convincing proofs as well as the crucial importance of the resurrection for the whole of the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Now let me stop there. You guys see the phrase, most of whom are still living. Paul, who wrote that, is saying that during that 40-day period where Jesus showed himself alive by these many convincing proofs, he showed himself to different groups of people at different times. And on one occasion, he showed himself to 500 people and then adds this phrase, most of them are still alive. And then says, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Now, why does he add the most of whom are still alive? Why does he add that? It's his challenge to say these are people who are alive that you can actually go talk to. At the time Paul wrote this, there were these eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Not only were there the the 12 apostles, but there were all these other people as well. And he's saying most of them are still alive, so you can go and, and ask them. And then it says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, that is... And he goes on to say, I'm the least of the apostles. Do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Here's why he says that. I'm abnormally born. I'm the least of the apostles. Here's why. Because he wasn't called to be an apostle at the same time the rest of them were. And that's why he says, I'm abnormally born. I came into this family at a different time. They were all called together. And then later, I'm on the road to Damascus. And you know the story of Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the great apostle. Now this resurrection that Jesus gave many convincing proofs, showing himself to people, people that in the first century you could actually talk to, that actually saw him. Many different groups of people in different settings. But middle of page 17, this was such a monumental event that it caused seismic changes for the religion of Jesus and his followers and ultimately cost the apostles their very lives. The events subsequent to the resurrection are further proof of the authenticity of that resurrection. Now here they are, and then we'll be done. But have you ever considered the fact that we are here on Sunday because 2,000 years ago a, a, a miraculous event occurred that changed the day of worship from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week? Have you ever thought about why we worship on Sunday? It's called the Lord's Day in Scripture. 
We celebrate the resurrection, especially at Easter. But the truth is, every first day of the week is a celebration of the resurrection. Because the reason we worship today, Sunday, instead of yesterday, Saturday, which is the way it had been done for centuries, is because something astounding happened on that first day of the week 2,000 years ago. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that give the account of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth, when they give the account of the resurrection, which all four of them do, they all say it happened on the first day of the week. Jesus rose on that first day. And then immediately you have his followers not worshiping as they had for centuries on Saturday, the Sabbath, but rather on Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, what accounts for that? And I suggest to you there ain't nothing that accounts for that except that Jesus rose from the dead that day. And if Jesus had if this extraordinary event had not occurred on that day, then indeed they, we and they would be still worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath. And then lastly, you see, be there, martyrs don't lie. You see, you could be sitting here and saying to yourself, okay, you know, Jesus showed himself to these people, or at least they thought Jesus showed himself to them. I mean, can't they just be hallucinating? Can't they, uh, can't they just have gotten it wrong? And the answer to that is, yeah, you know, people do get things wrong all the time. But you don't get all of these different groups of people in different settings getting it wrong all the time, one. I mean, you might have somebody, you know, you have these apparitions all the time, like Mary, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be unkind, but, you know, the Virgin Mary in Roman Catholicism shows up in the strangest places. Fast food restaurants. I mean, really. And then people have these apparitions, and then, and then people will come and flock, and can't you see the image of Mary in this, you know, in this thing? And people are going, yeah, I see the image of Mary in this thing, right? So you can have people coming to the same thing and all kind of look in to, to figure it out. But in Jesus' resurrection, you have people coming in different settings, different people, and they're not looking at some image against a wall or something or trying to you know, find it in something else, but rather they're talking with him and touching him and eating with him. But it goes further than that. The people who did that, now get this, they were willing to die for the truth that that actually happened. So I say in that last paragraph, it's interesting to note that Jesus' followers each risked and many gave their lives for the message they preached. Now please note this carefully. While it is the case that many have given their lives for what they thought to be true, if the resurrection were not a fact, the apostles would have given their lives for what they knew was a lie. Do you see the difference? If you're part of the Jim Jones cult in Guyana in 1978... This is where we got the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid. You know, he gave the command for everyone to do as they had rehearsed and to drink the poison and to, and to die and give their lives. And, and hundreds of people did that. In fact, I think it was 2,000 people did that. They did that because they believed something that was a lie. But in the apostles' case, we're talking about a resurrection where you claim to have eaten with, touched, and talked with someone. Something you would have known, not just you thought to be true. I love this guy's philosophy. I think he's really the Messiah. This is something you would have known to be a lie. And that last line, the martyrdom of the many who claim to see the resurrected Christ is a convincing proof of the authenticity 
of the resurrection itself. All right. Next week, we'll continue then our look at the uniqueness of, of Scripture. Let's ask the Lord to go with us this week and bring us back together next Lord's Day. Father, thank you for the blessings of this day. We thank you for the opportunity to have learned of you, to praise you, to give back to you. We ask you, Lord, to help us this week as we seek to serve you, as your ambassadors in your world. We ask you to open doors of opportunity for us to give your truth to those that you bring in our circle of, of influence. We ask you to help us to have clarity and have boldness, to give the truth with the love of Christ. And Lord, uh, help us to remember that the faith that we represent is a faith that is based on, on evidence. It's a faith that is based upon historical fact. And so help us never to shy away from the claims of truth that your word makes about the Lord Jesus and upon the salvation that we enjoy in him. Help us to do that then this week. We ask you to grant us joy in the journey, safety this week, and bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.